And we are Paranormal Chicks. And this is the second annual Campfire Tales. What are Campfire Tales? Will you tell them, Donna? <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Well, the Creepinati members who wanted to write a story, it is fiction. They submit it, and it, it's supposed to be something you could tell sitting around a campfire. Something that is a little bit creepy. You know, it doesn't have to be full-on, like, boo. But... Just something that makes you think. So sit back, get your s'mores fixin', and get ready to be spooked. This one is called Elevator Down by Ed W. One in every hundred thousand. That's the odds of becoming trapped in an elevator. With approximately 900,000 elevators in use in the United States alone, you would think elevator mishaps would be more prevalent in social awareness. They happen. Most certainly they happen. But it's not something that goes through your mind when entering one of the damn things. Well, at least it's not something that I have ever concerned myself with. But as I stood in that death box suspended over seven floors of open air and going nowhere fast, I couldn't help but wonder if, just maybe, I should have taken the stairs. I tried the call button. I knew better, of course. It was a compulsion. I knew nothing would happen. I had once heard that a lot of the buttons in those public areas are placed there specifically to make the average person feel as though they had accomplished something, but don't really do anything. Examples would be crosswalk buttons, door close buttons, or the call server button on those kiosk tablets so many restaurants are switching to. That being said, I pressed the call button two or three more times in quick succession And you know what? I did feel mildly accomplished. Well, hell, I said to myself, alone, in a metal box, by myself, for no reason other than to speak. It was another compulsion. My words echoed, causing me to cringe. It was like hearing your voice on recording. You don't want to acknowledge that this is how you sound, but there was no denying the southern accent. It was a subtle indication of duress. I keep that accent locked down in a box marked, in case of, this here ain't good, break glass. The fact I had broken said glass so quickly worried me, but there was nothing to be done. I was trapped and I was helpless. The near total silence left behind by the ungodly screech of metal on metal was loud. Too loud, actually. A ringing, inescapable silence that made the pit of my stomach lurch. The temperature climbed rapidly. Soon, the still air began to set heavy on my lungs. 
With every passing breath, I could feel less and less oxygen being absorbed. I began to feel woozy. My vision started to white out around the edges, and just as I felt my knees would give way, the piercing sound reached the climax of its torturous crescendo with a distant hissing. A sound much like steam escaping some unknown line beyond the walls of my dangling coffin. Then came a series of popping sounds, like raw bacon thrown on far too hot of a skillet, ending in an explosion of the lights all around me, plunging me into total darkness. The ringing had ceased, thankfully, but had left in its place a smell of burning sulfur. The sudden increases in temperatures remained as well. I simply stood there, broiling in my already uncomfortable suit and wondering when the cable would snap. I knew the cable would snap. Really, though, at this point, why wouldn't the cable snap? My hands were trembling from adrenaline pumping through my veins. There must be a fire in the building, I thought in an attempt to regain composure. The thought of a fire in the building while being trapped in an elevator is arguably worse than simply being trapped in an elevator. So my bid for composure went about as well as you could imagine it did. I reached out with blind, groping hands to touch the elevator's mirrored walls in hopes of ascertaining the severity of this imagined fire, but the wall was cool to the touch. I began to say something to myself, again, solely for the sake of having something to say. I have no doubt it would have been a string of profanity, but before I could finish my sentence, I realized I was not alone in the elevator. My hand was snatched suddenly as it rested against the wall. I tried to pull back, but the intruder's rough digits engulfed me, crushing my palm painfully to the surface in a vice-like grip. Before I could form even a single swear word, the elevator was flooded with a deep crimson light. My eyes shot to the mirror, and that's when I saw what was crushing my hand against the wall. It was my own damned reflection reaching through from the mirror world, looking at me with a predatory grin which bore a mouthful of jagged fangs. Its eyes were black as coal and the hand that gripped my own was leathery and charred by the flames of whatever hell it lived in. Cracks in the hand oozed a thick, viscous liquid onto my own. The thick secretions burned to the touch. The smell of burning flesh and cheap polycotton blend filled the air around me. At this point, I think I might have screamed. The creature in the reflection threw its head back and laughed maniacally while I pulled back against its iron grip. Then we were falling. Rapidly. It was as if the ground had simply disappeared, and now, not unlike Wiley e. Coyote, when he realizes he had chased that pesky roadrunner right off a cliff, we were plummeting. The elevator floor's counter came to life and began tracking our descent. Seven. Six. The reflection was howling with laughter. Five. Four. I continued to struggle, placing one foot on the wall, using my legs to stretch to break free from the grip. I was prepared to lose the hand if need be. I'd get a hook. It would be fun. Frantically, I scrolled through the memories of anything any TV show I had ever seen had said anything about surviving elevator falls. They say jump before you hit bottom, right? Three. Two. Just as I thought I would be crushed between the elevator floors and the ceiling, the hand released me. One. 
I woke up a few days later in a hospital. My head was banged and hurt like hell. Dr. Paraday speculates I had simply lost my balance and hit my head on the wall. When the doors opened on the first floor, a group of now-traumatized custodians found me covered in my own blood. There was no mention of a fire. Nobody had reported a stall in the elevator service either. Dr. Paraday thinks everything that happened is simply the result of a coma dream. I had, after all, been out cold for several days. Honestly, I can live with that. There doesn't seem to be any lasting damage, and assuming I don't become trapped in another elevator, I should be able to live a generally pleasant life, which, so far at least, I have. Hell, I hardly ever think about the time I spent trapped in that claustrophobic box. That is to say, except when I look in a mirror and see the face of a scarred, pathetic human. An insignificant worm trap in his own personal hell. He wants me to free him, but I will never go back. This one is titled The Preface to Calvin by Ashlyn F. Calvin Henry was a well-to-do salesman that garnered his wealth by convincing suburban housewives that their neighborhood was dangerous enough for a home security system installation. Calvin Henry was very good at convincing people, so much so that he was the top seller of his branch. Rewarded by quarterly bonuses and an annual salary of $70,000. He considered himself to be quite the bachelor. He wore Prussian blue suits adorned with pressed silk ties and 14 karat gold cufflinks. He stood on a pair of Italian calfskin shoes that had mahogany block heels and leather soles. Calvin was, in fact, a bachelor, and a powerful one at that. His briefcase was of rich black leather clasped together by a combination lock. CH was engraved in the bottom right corner. Enclosed in his powerful briefcase, his tools of manipulation, surveys, statistics, contracts, features, and a slick fountain pen that those housewives seemed to melt over when he'd hand it to them with his hefty hands and an almost sensual smile. Another commission in the books. Calvin would use that somewhat hard-earned cash to purchase a home out on the edge of the city and fully furnish it. Despite wearing his wealth on his sleeve, Calvin had minimalistic taste. His home was only two stories and quite contemporary. The exterior was flush with asymmetrical four-pane windows and cool ash siding accented by a stone foundation. The interior was just as modern, flooded with warm, natural light, an alternated white carpet and provincial hardwood floors by room. It was furnished with simplistic geometric decor, yet strange Swedish furniture. Though there was one room that Calvin took specific pride in, his library. The library was nothing like the rest of the home. In fact, it didn't even have windows. 
It was in the northwest corner of the second floor and was entombed behind an ominous obsidian black door. The gold filigree handle remained locked by built-in combination, much like that oh-so-powerful briefcase. Beyond that door was where Calvin would spend most of his evenings. He'd come home from work, fix himself a glass of Justerini and Brooks whiskey, neat, and wash it down with a cigar imported from Israel. He'd do so in that library, his lair. Despite not having windows, the library walls were laced with heavy purple velvet curtains. Deep oak bookshelves loomed over the rest of the room as they stood floor to high ceiling. They spilled over with hardback classics and dust. The library itself seemed to simultaneously cave in but stretch like a never-ending hallway. On the furthest wall, there was no curtains but instead a fireplace. It was built of hefty brick, coated in soot from constant wear. The mantle was cracked and sagged with age, its wood warped deviously into a scowl as if it dared to place something upon it. Calvin pinched his cigar between his teeth and dangled his glass between his fingers as he entered the library, the dust of the curtains stirring as he opened the door. It swirled around in the air and encased his nostrils. He inhaled it with such hunger. The curtains continued to excitedly flap and sway in greeting, and he strutted through the bookshelves to the fireplace, his block heels sounding off a cadence below him. He rested his whiskey on the defiant mantelpiece and roared up a fresh fire, then placed his briefcase down beside his most prized possession, his chair. Calvin's chair sat a few feet across from the fireplace, casting a monstrous shadow over the room that danced across the curtains and splayed about the floor. The chair was a handcrafted throne that shouldered a decrepit, bony hunch over Calvin as he sat. Its austere back hugged him and stretched like a leathery canvas over the skeleton of the chair's structure. The texture seemed to alter within its quilted fashion, past each hair-like seam. The seams flowed into one another, sealed off by button eyes that glazed over under their resin. They glinted with the light of the fire as if filled with life, though they were quite the contrary. Calvin fingered them, admiring their design as his ankles pressed against the chair's base. It was built of four sturdy legs, those of which were wide and stout, but held a good amount of muscle. The rear legs presented themselves like a pair of haunches, and the front ones had girth like fatty calves. Calvin reached down and picked up his briefcase, placing it upon his lap. With a click, the combination lock snapped open, and Calvin began to thumb through the paperwork that lay inside. It listed the address of the woman whom Calvin had just successfully sold a home security system to. He was so very convincing after all. 
The woman's name was etched out at the bottom with that fountain pen without a mark of hesitation. Genevieve Parsons. For a moment, Calvin paused, puffing his cigar. Genevieve's pixie face filled his mind. She had a taut ponytail that cascaded down with waves over her petite shoulders. Small hairs framed and tumbled over her cheeks and kissed her eyelashes. Calvin remembered how Genevieve would flash a timid smile and bat her glistening sapphire eyes as she opened the door for the well-to-do salesman before her. With another puff of the Israeli cigar, the moment of recollection lapsed and Calvin returned his focus to his chair. His hefty hands rested upon its arms, and he gave them his somewhat sensual smile as his hands glided down to meet those at the base of the arms. Calvin held them, and they laid limply into his. Their yellowed and blackened nails scratched into his palms, and their wrist creaked from the forced movement. As Calvin relaxed into the back of the chair, a button eye toppled over his shoulder and rolled in front of the roaring fire. Calvin fixated on it momentarily, then turned his attention back to the contract in the briefcase. Genevieve Parsons, the very convincing salesman thought, with sapphire eyes. This one is called Miss Hidinghammer by Misty. In the darkest corner she waits, damp, musk, dank, and dark. She waits, there in the place you dare not go. The sound, the smell, your fear, she waits. How did she get there? Has she always been? Or did she just show up one day because I was bad? I remember the night she showed up. I found that sweetest little doll that night. I just had to keep her. The doll was in my basement. There, under the stairs, after all. I brought it upstairs and placed it on the shelf. That's the night the first hammer struck the floor. I couldn't believe it. And here it is a year later. And she still yells and hammers. I need to know what's going on. Now I had to look. I went to the dark, smelly place below the stairs. I looked. She isn't there. I heard her. She hammered the floor. I can smell her. She is here, hiding and waiting. I peer around in the dim light from the kitchen above me. Where is the cord for the light? Why can't I find her? Searching. It's here somewhere. The smell is rushing up at me. Oh, she's near fear. Finally, the cord. Relief of the light flushes over me. No one. Nothing. Feeling braver in the light, I look around in every corner. Nothing. I head back upstairs with the light on for good measure. On the second step, the light went out with a loud crack and glass breaking all around me. Was it hit with a hammer? The light upstairs went out. Pitch black. This is when she comes. This is what she has been waiting for. I am in her domain now. 
fumbling up the stairs in the dark, rushing as fast as I can go. Why don't my legs move faster? Am I moving in place? What was that behind me? Whoosh! The sound of the hammer swinging wildly through the air. I feel the freezing air with a rotting stench surrounding me. Why don't my feet move faster? Whoosh! Crack! The hammer swings again at my back. It hit the step below my feet. I scream. Up the stairs I go. Finally, the door. Why is the door closed? No! I scream, fumbling, pushing the door. Open, open, open! The door swings wide into the kitchen. I fall onto the floor. Turning around, kicking the door shut. Frantic. Fear. It shuts. I sit there, my eyes wide in the dark, looking at the door. Quiet. Under me, the hammer hits. I scream. Why did I go down there? Again, another hit. Harder this time. I scramble to my feet, desperately trying to stand up. I knew she would come for me. She has every time. The hammer hit the floor below my feet again. Fear. I won't do it again. I know the rules. She takes what she wants. No one dares enter the lair of Miss Hiding Hammer. It must be the doll. It has to be. The hammer hits under my feet harder and harder. I rush over to the shelf and grab it. It has such sweet little pigtails and lovely eyes. So mesmerizing. Now it hits and a growling scream at the door. No, it is the doll. I run to the stairs, throw open the door. With my eyes closed in terror, I toss the doll down the steps. Because no way am I going down there again and slam the door. I melt on the floor in pure fear, unable to move. It's silent. From the grave she rose to hide in the shadow. In the dark she rots. The hammer she swings to get at her prey. Once she decides to take something, it is hers forever. If you take it from her, she will come and get you. She waits for as long as it takes. She waits. This one is titled, What is Going on in My House? by Isaac M. The blue and red lights illuminating the area around my house are blinding. The sirens screaming, deafening. There are men in uniform buzzing all over my yard, to and from the front door to their various cruisers. Police slang that I never paid enough attention to during law and order being muttered in the radios. What is going on in my house? Hey, I call out to one of the officers passing by me. What's going on here? This is my house. The officer looks up and opens his mouth, I assume to respond, but something comes through his radio and his attention shifts elsewhere. I try to grab another officer's attention, but achieve basically the same result. Everyone is too preoccupied to notice me. What is going on in my house? I decide to go in and get to the bottom of this myself since all the cops seem to be too busy to talk to me. As I'm marching through the wide open door, I catch the end of one of the police officers' conversation. I've never seen anything like it. My living room is full of crime scene techs wearing gloves and taking pictures. I see one at the fireplace dusting for fingerprints on the mantle. She accidentally knocks over the framed picture of my fiance Rachel and I on our ski trip last year. Where is she? Has something happened to her? 
I follow the flow of traffic, dodging who I assume to be two detectives because they're wearing pressed button-up shirts tucked into dress pants. Everyone seems to be coming from upstairs. I pass another CSI tech holding an evidence bag. In it, a knife saturated in blood. Nausea threatens to make me bend over, but I have to get to Rachel. I hurry now. Where is she? What is going on in my house? The hallway is long and surprisingly empty. At the end, the door to our bedroom is open. Within, I can see the shapes of more people. Officers, CSI, detectives, I'm not sure. I'm not looking at them. I'm looking at the singular bloody handprint on the side of the door and the bloody footprints exiting. Much slower now, I peek inside my bedroom. I'm not sure I even want to look, but I do anyway. Blood. There's blood splatter all over the walls and the ceiling. I may not have paid attention to the police slaying, but I did pay attention to what arterial spray looks like. What is going on in my house? By the big window, I see who can only be the coroner leaning over a figure lying on the ground. Is that Rachel? The scream is ripped from my lungs before I have any chance to stop it. And I don't wait for a response because my feet move towards the person on the floor by their own accord. The first thing I notice, besides the amount of blood, are the multiple wounds in the chest. Next is a deep slash across the neck, so deep it's almost severed the head from the body. Tears have long since begun streaking down my cheeks. My eyes gradually and with caution travel up the sliced neck to the face of my... myself? In sheer confusion, I look up and out the window into the front yard where I catch a glimpse of Rachel handcuffed, and being placed into the back of a cop car. The front of her pajamas is soaked in blood. What has happened in my house? This one is called The Reality of It All by Randy H. Alan sat at his desk, his back arched forward, the blue light from the LED panel burning his retinas. This night, just another repeat of several nights past. He felt like it had been months since he was able to rest. Here, at his desk, he had spent several nights attempting to find the satisfaction of a full night's sleep once again, but the Sandman continued to elude him. Doctors had told him to avoid screen time before bed, to avoid blue light. They warned him it was ruining his circadian rhythm, and his restlessness wouldn't improve until he could peel himself away from the chair and lay in his bed. However, every time Alan would lay himself down to sleep, the pleasantry of dreams would feel as if they were never in his grasp. Instead, he would give up and retreat back to his media center. Some nights it was to play video games. Other nights he would dive into rabbit holes on YouTube. Others he would read page upon page of Wikipedia articles to the point where the relations between the first and the last articles he encountered would have little to no correlation. 
Tonight, Alan sat on the pages of Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist, hoping to find something else to senselessly waste money on to give him that brief rush of serotonin that he desperately sought. He scrolled through an ever-growing number of listings, mindlessly, at times not even paying attention to the text as it briefly appeared on the screen before quickly sliding upwards off the screen. He wasn't looking for anything in particular. He wasn't even trying to find a good deal. Rather, he was looking for any one random object that his brain told him he would get enjoyment from. Alan felt detached from himself. He felt like another being was in control of his actions. These brief, mindless moments were the closest he would get to rest and the only time he was truly turned off to the world. He scrolled past mountain bikes, boxed Pokemon cards, severely outdated laptops asking for a hefty price, old cars that needed more repairs than the seller would ever lead on. He glossed over listings for knockoffs on name-brand merchandise, hand-painted longboards, cell phones that had been dropped 20 times, and even someone selling the equipment necessary to build a wrestling ring. He glanced through ads for everything from Apple AirPod to Zeiss camera lenses. Alan had lost himself on the sea from bright white background. He was in a trance, put under by the hypnotic scroll of black texts. He had become a drone, almost zombie-like, his brain on autopilot while his body went through the motions that still kept him just human enough. When Alan was finally able to snap out of his sleep-deprived stupor, he told himself whatever the next item was to appear on his screen, he was going to buy it. Screw it. I'll figure out a way to pay for it, he figured. He scrolled, waiting for the next item to load. To his astonishment, the item for sale was something he had much interest in and something he had been considering to purchase. It was a listing for a VR headset, one Alan was familiar with and had researched a great deal before ultimately deciding against a purchase because of his lack of free time. His insomnia, if anything else, warranted him much more time than before. His deal with himself meant that he didn't have an argument against the purchase anyway. Alan sat up straight in his chair with renewed purpose. He carefully read over the listing, informing him the device was like new, but the current owner wasn't certain of the amount of time spent using the device. That was peculiar, but Alan read on. Everything included, even the original packaging and some additional accessories. Would prefer not to piece out, cash only. Alan's interest was piqued. His eyes backtracked to the green text under the image. These emerald numbers are what would second draw suspicion from Alan. The seller was asking an unusually low price, especially for an item that was in the extraordinary condition it was, especially for the accessories included, and especially for something that hadn't been available on the market for very long. The toll to enter the world of virtual reality would only be $125. That can't be right. Even Alan's exhausted mind knew that an offer such as this was a bit too good to be true. He knew he needed to tread carefully if he were to make an offer and make sure everything checked out. He, like many others, had been burned on marketplace transactions before. He wasn't about to let fatigue cost him more than his loss of sleep. He typed out a message to send off to the seller to inquire about some of the aspects of the bargain that were more suspect. Hello, is this really for the latest model of Vision Wave? Are you actually the owner of this headset? Is there or has there been any damage to the unit? What Alan wanted to ask was how can you possibly be selling this for so cheap? 
but he also didn't want to give away that they should be charging more than their initial offer in case this was the case of the seller not realizing what they actually had their hands on. With a click, he sent the message off through the wires before glancing at the clock and realizing it was 3 in the morning. The likelihood of a response was improbable. He grabbed his mouse and flung his cursor across the screen to close a tab that contained his messages. A window appeared. The notification sound actually startled him. Until then, he had been sitting in the room with only the sound of the rushing air from his computer fans keeping him company. He was shocked. Within seconds of sending the inquiry message, the seller was responding. Hello, Alan. Yes, this is for the latest model of Vision Wave. Yes, I am the current owner. No, the unit is not damaged in any way. I know I am selling the item for an unusual price, but I'm trying to get rid of it. Alan read over the message. The fact that the seller was so eagerly unloading the popular headset made him uneasy. He racked his brain how to respond. Even through his exhaustion, he didn't seem dissuaded from the transaction, but he also didn't want to seem overly interested. He watched the vertical line blink. Every second long he watched, the line appeared to blink slower and slower. After a considerable amount of time, he typed the simplest response. Okay, good to hear, but why are you selling it so cheap? Despite the rapid response the first time, Alan still didn't expect the speed in which he got a reply this time. It felt as if the bits of data barely had time to travel to the recipient from the point that he pressed the digital button. Instantly, Alan had a response. All right, I'll be honest. The device used to belong to my brother. Alan slumped back down into his chair. He felt deflated. He knew it was too good to be true, and it was all too common of an occurrence for users to sell items that were stolen. No wonder this seller was so eager to dispose of the headset. No wonder the price was so suspiciously low. Alan clicked on the message window to admonish the seller and to perhaps find out who the user's brother was so he could do the noble act of informing them that they were the victim of theft. But before Alan could even type a single character, he received another message. I didn't steal it. The visionware belonged to my brother, but he has since passed away. Alan felt a dissatisfied sense of relief. He felt ashamed he was so quick to accuse the person on the other side of the screen, especially when they were already dealing with the loss of a loved one. But he was so relieved and felt he could confidently make the purchase from the seller. I am so sorry for your loss. I would gladly take the headset off your hands, though. Alan replied, thank you, and thank you for your generosity, the anonymous seller responded. The two continued their conversation, working out the details of the transaction and establishing where they would meet to complete it. The agreement was to meet at a local park at 8 a.m. the same day. Alan figured, why not? I'm not going to sleep anyway. They shared their farewells, and Alan again sat in his chair, leaning forward, browsing news sites and forums, mindlessly waiting for the sun to rise. When the time came, Alan made his way to the park that had been agreed upon. They had settled to meet at a bench that was close to some swings. Even though it was relatively early, there were already children and parents present. This helped put Alan's mind at ease. He knew that if he were being tricked, that at least he also wouldn't be getting mugged. He approached the bench, but as he grew closer, he didn't see anyone awaiting his arrival. Rather, he saw the VR headset in its box along with a bag, a rock, and a note. Confused, he picked up the note and it read, Alan, here's the vision wave along with the accessories in the listing. Please leave the cash under the rock on the bench. Don't attempt to take it without leaving the cash. We're watching you. The note was unsettling, but he followed the instructions, 
grabbed the box and bagged up the accessories and made a quick exit before anyone could confront him and before the seller may have a change of heart. Shortly after his exit from the park, he received another message from the seller. Thank you for your patronage. We really hope you enjoy the first trip to virtual reality. Fucking weird, Alan whispered to himself. Creeped out, but not enough to take away from the excitement of racing home and jumping into a new world. As soon as Alan returned home, he chucked his jacket, key, and wallet in one throw onto his coffee table and dashed hastily to his media center. This was the most excited he had been about anything in weeks. He placed the box on his desk, sliding the slipcover off the cardboard and lifting the lid to retrieve the headset, as well as a pair of gloves that are required to interact with the device, and special slippers that help emulate walking. Even though assured of their quality, Alan was still surprised to see the exceptional condition everything included in the deal was in. He knew he should let the unit charge, but he couldn't wait any longer. He put the gloves on, kicked the slippers to the side for now, anticipating what his first moments in another world would be like. He lowered the headset over his eyes. He really felt like he was leaving his current reality behind. His heart raced in excitement. His fatigue, his exhaustion all diminished. He reached up to the headset and powered it on. To Alan's dismay, he was first greeted with a welcome screen that named the person that the headset previously belonged to. From there, the headset appeared to enter an initial setup mode. Alan was relieved. He was worried that the headset wasn't wiped and he'd have to wait through the process of formatting the storage unit. An alien-like figure appeared before Alan. It asked his name and if he was a new user. Alan responded accordingly. Please hold your eyes steady for retina scan. The alien spoke as it walked out of view. How advanced. I had no idea it could read your eyes, Alan thought out loud. The device lowered from the top of Alan's view. He couldn't help but look around in amazement at this foreign land. Please hold your head and eyes still, Alan, the alien voice reminded Alan. Alan followed the commands as the device slowly approached his face. Two arms reached out, appearing to grab Alan's head. But he knew they weren't real. Still. He played around and kept his head steady. A third arm extended to the front of Alan's left eye, and a wide laser swiped from the top to the bottom of his entire eye. Retina scan failed. Please hold still and try again. Alan grew a little frustrated. This was an incredible device with incredible new worlds to explore, and he was losing his patience with this dragging startup. He just wanted to get to the real games, but it was forcing him to play along. He settled his nerves for a moment and used all the muscles he could to keep his head from moving and prevent his eye from even blinking. The wide laser completed its function again. Retina scan failed. Please hold for alternative identification method. Alan began to think maybe he was scammed after all. He should have known it was too good to be true. Twice now, the initial functions of the unit couldn't even allow him access to the more demanding software the headset had to offer. Outrageous, he thought. Still, he pressed on and waited the alternative identification method before casting judgment on the device. Again, the third arm moved in front of Alan's left eye. This time, however, it split into four smaller, needle-like appendages. Three of them swiftly closed in on his eye. It was enough to startle him. The last extension then slowly approached the center of Alan's eye. It grew closer, and now he could see just how needle-like this extension was. He kept telling himself, this isn't real. The needle grew closer. Is this thing going to pierce my eye? Alan said out loud. 
It grew closer still, and Alan grew tense. He began squeezing his fists tight, bracing for the needles to point, his nails digging into his palm, scraping his skin and leaving indentions. He attempted to look away, hoping to either reset the device or perhaps this was all for show. However, when he attempted to look away, he felt as if his eye was locked into place. He could just adjust his sight with his right eye, but when he would try to move his left, it was still fixated on the advancing needle. The needle was so close now to Alan's pupil that he felt as if it would really penetrate at any moment. Fuck this, Alan yelled, and instinctively he tried to back away from the device, forgetting he could simply lift the headset. But because Alan had not put on the slippers, he couldn't move in the virtual reality world. In reality, he had almost run into the wall of his room, but his virtual self stayed still. Right before the needle could make contact with his eye, Alan's thoughts caught up to him and he pulled the headset off his head. Adrenaline was now coursing through his body. Any sign of exhaustion was now gone. Alan pulled over the chair he was glued to the night before and bent over, breathing heavily, and sweat poured down his face and soaked his socks on the hardwood floor. Alan sat there trying to rationalize what just happened. He must have fallen asleep. Surely this was a nightmare. But he looked around and saw that the headset was on the floor and the gloves still on his hands. This was reality. What the fuck was that? Alan took a second to collect himself before rolling his chair under his desk and began searching to see if any other users had the same problem with setting up their headsets. Alan wanted to see exactly what everyone's first experience was like. But he only found positive remarks and users discussing how they enjoyed the first moments leaving their current reality and entering the virtual world. He watched YouTube videos of people creating their first account and the virtual avatars all with much excitement and with nothing but positive experiences to share. He watched as a user went through the initial process and had their retina scanned without incident. He went to Reddit and asked the users there if anyone had experienced anything like he had, but the users there thought it sounded too far-fetched. They called him a troll and many claimed that he was trying to write a lame creepypasta. Alan stopped and looked at his reflection in the blank screen for a second. You're losing it, dude. You're really losing it. Alan felt as if he was losing touch with reality while being present in it. After being assured by every corner of the internet that no one had shared the experience he had, Alan mustered up the courage to put the headset on and try again. Before slipping the headset over his eyes and fading his world to black, he made sure to put the slippers on in case he decided to move around. This time, when the device powered on, the welcome message now stated Alan's name. The alien appeared again, but for some reason, it seemed to be more pleasant and cheerful to Alan. The process continued as it had previously. The arms descended to the top of Alan's view and placed itself in front of his left eye. He grew anxious again, worried to have to witness the looming needle again. He hoped and pleaded that the retina scan would work and allow him to continue using the device. Slowly again, the laser descended down Alan's eye. Retina scan successful. Welcome back, Alan. Alan sighed in relief as the screen washed out to bright white light and the alien now instructed him how to use the device. When the introduction was at last finished, he explored the menus to look and to see what all he could do in this new world without needing instructions. He managed to navigate to where the apps and the games were located. He realized that the previous owner's games were not removed from the device and were, in fact, sorted by difficulty already. 
There were only three games, but he figured that only sweetened the deal of this purchase. The top game appeared to be some sort of war-related first-person shooter. It was stated to be professional. The center game had pots, pans, knives, and other food-related items. He couldn't tell if it was a cooking game or perhaps a way to learn recipes. It was labeled intermediate. Last was a game with no discerning images, just text and a colored background. It was titled Real Life Simulator. Alan figured it was one of those joke simulation games like Goat Simulator. Maybe it was some sort of social commentary. Regardless, it was designated beginner. Since this was the first time Alan had stepped out of reality, it was best to step back into it and play the game for beginners. Once he started the game up, Alan was presented with a character sitting at a desk. He looked around the environment and realized he was at his own desk. How could this be? He had surmised that the cameras that are used for the positioning of the headset had scanned the room and were using information to feed the headset. How cool, he thought. Alan looked for prompts into what to do, but the game didn't appear to have any real goal besides introducing you to getting comfortable with virtual reality for the first time. Excited, he stood up from the desk. He was astonished by the likeness of his house that was being presented to him. He decided to leave his house. He took the steps down from his front door. He could swear he could actually hear the birds chirping and feel the sun on his skin. This is incredible. He was in awe. He came closer to a coffee shop he was familiar with, and a prompt appeared above his head. Buy a coffee, it read. Oh, neat. Alan was delighted. Alan entered the coffee shop and purchased his favorite caramel macchiato. As he made the purchase, he saw a green screen denoting the money he had used in the transaction. Despite not being real, the gloves told him it was hot. Everything he was being fed seemed so genuine that he could smell the freshly roasted beans. As he was leaving, he passed a woman. She turned to give him a second look, and Alan returned the pleasantry. He turned to exit the door when he got another prompt. Get her number, it read. Whoa, that's going to be a challenge. Alan approached the woman and started a conversation. Luckily, she showed interest back, and before he knew it, she was writing her number down on a napkin. When the woman handed him her number, a line crossed through the prompt in a yellow text appeared, plus 100 XP. No chance that would ever happen in real life. I'll almost never leave the house. Alan couldn't stop being amazed by the game as he continued down the street, coming up to a gas station. He noticed a lot of commotion and a man frantically running from the door and out his car speeding off. Alan looked into the gas station and was horrified to see it was being robbed. Almost immediately, a prompt appeared. Stop the robbery. That seems like a hell of a jump from the last quest. But Alan having fun with the game, gaining confidence, and being active in the virtual reality, followed the directions and entered the gas station. Immediately, the gunman turned to Alan and told him to freeze, which he listened to. However, his confidence would get the best of him. Alan gradually encroached on the man's space. The robber continued to threaten him and told him if he came any closer, he'd shoot. Bang! The robber wasn't lying, but luckily he shot the window behind Alan. This, however, was enough of a distraction to allow the clerk to wrestle the gun from the man and the robber ran away. Alan picked up the gun as the clerk thanked him for his heroics. Alan smiled and told the clerk everything was fine as he watched the prompt appear, plus 500 XP. Alan left the gas station and proceeded on his trip until he came across a bank. The prompt appeared, Rob Bank. What? I can't do that. How is that even real life? Do it, the game demanded, this time with an added voice. All right, all right. 
Alan wielded the gun and entered the bank. He hesitated, questioning if he could even do this in VR, but remembered all the times he had done much worse in video games and proceeded. He walked up to a teller and demanded money. The graphics were so realistic that he could feel the fear in the expressions from the young woman's face. The teller handed him the money, but the moment Alan turned around, he heard metal gates slamming behind him and a security guard was racing towards him. Shoot him, the game pressured Alan. This is too real. The thought of shooting a guard frightened him. Do it. With that, Alan lifted the gun and fired, hitting the guard in the neck. Alan ran over to the man in disbelief of what he had just done. Blood was flowing from his wound, pouring onto the aged tile. Jesus Christ. Alan felt sick. He had never felt like this in any other video game before. He swore he could see the life leave the eyes of the guard. This game wasn't as pleasant now. In fact, it was downright disturbing. Alan wasn't left with much time to concern over what happened. The cops were on their way, and he wanted the game's next instructions. Run. Alan took off, racing down the stairs of the bank, back to the road, to the sounds of sirens closing in on him. When he reached the street, there was a sports car with the door already open. Get in. Alan hopped in the car as the cops converged on his location. Drive, another prompt commanded. Not like I need to be told that, Alan shouted. Alan swerved in and out of traffic, speeding through lights with reckless abandon, only praying that he didn't hit another vehicle, or worse, a pedestrian. But he wasn't a fantastic driver, and eventually the cops had caught up. They maneuvered their way right alongside Alan. They used their loudspeaker to tell him to pull over. They attempted to smash Alan's car. Yet again, he was amazed at how exhilarating the game was, especially for something labeled for beginners. The cops were growing restless and more irate at Alan's failure to comply. A younger, overzealous cop drew his gun and fired through Alan's driver's side window. The bullet hit his hand and he began to bleed, making it difficult to steer as the blood lubricated the steering wheel. Because of the gloves, Alan could feel everything. What the fuck? This is so intense, Alan shouted. But now he is terrified. He begins heavily breathing and feeling like he had earlier in the day. The cops closing in on him felt like the needle growing ever closer to his eye. He couldn't take it anymore and he wanted out. Not knowing how to exit the game, he reached up for the headset to remove it. He pulled the headset, but it would not move. He tried again, driving with one hand, still trying to not crash the vehicle. And again, it would not move. A third time, this time driving slower and using both hands to remove the headset. And again, it won't move. There is no escape. You will comply. A voice was heard. I want to quit, Alan yelled, hoping to stop the game. His hands now throbbing in pain, his shoes, pants, legs covered in fresh blood. There is no quitting. Now drive, the voice instructed. With no other option, Alan sped through town. As he did, he managed to lose the cops. I actually made it. He thought, still reeling in pain, but he couldn't remove the gloves or else he wouldn't be able to drive. Everything was a bit too realistic for his comfort at this point. The only way for him to get out of the game was to get out of this town, he assumed. It was then that he realized he hadn't gotten the prompt to tell him he was successful. Alan's insomnia was now so far off and a distant worry. All he wanted to do was find a way to exit this game and enter reality. Suddenly, an arrow appeared above him. He quickly gathered it was leading the way. It was guiding him to the bridge that leaves town. This bridge spanned a wooded area. It's high enough up that the trees looked like florets of broccoli. 
Alan thought surely when he crossed the bridge, he'd be successful and he could take a break from the virtual world, the one he hoped would be an escape from reality. He took a moment to look out over the trees, looking at how they hide the rocky river below. When he looked back up, he saw the cops had blocked off the exit of the bridge. He slammed on brakes. The AI was programmed better than what he gave credit. He slammed the car into reverse, only to see that the cops had him surrounded. Now what? Get out, the game once more instructed. Alan got out of the car and began to walk towards the edge of the bridge. The cops were shouting at him to comply, to lay down with his arms and surrender as they advanced on his position. Alan continued walking towards the ledge. At this point, the cops started moving in on him with more urgency. Alan was encircled. With no escape, he drew his gun and started to aim his weapon at the officers when he received another prompt. Jump. What? Fly. Alan kept thinking how a jump from that height would kill him. Everything around him was so real, he forgot he was playing a game. Then suddenly, realization that he was still wearing the helmet, the gloves, the slippers settled in. Wait, I can do this. I can jump. I can fly. He took a deep breath, climbed the rail, and leapt. The trees that seemed so small began growing larger. He could hear the rush of the water from the river through the sound of the air blowing past his ears. He could feel the ripples of his clothes as the river rocks became more apparent. Alan wasn't flying. He was falling. He felt deflated. Nothing was going to lift him up. Just before making impact, he received one last prompt. Game over. This one is untitled, but by Zoe O. The small coffee shop was constantly abuzz, people coming and going. The hum of chatter among friends, a consistent white noise, much like a beehive. Yet, despite the droning of people, the clatter of crockery and the steam coming from the machine, this was her solitude, her quiet in the storm. This was the place her mind cleared of the troubles of the world and allowed her to focus on her work. The novel she was writing was a long time coming. Each week seemed to throw up new ideas, new twists, plot changes, and so it seemed never-ending. Years of watching and reading and listening to all things horror meant that her mind was constantly awash with ideas to scare, things to make the skin crawl and make you never want to sleep again, and transferring them onto paper was a long and arduous task. Part of the problem, she had been told, was the fact that she had transferred them to paper. So many friends and family had suggested she transferred her work to a laptop of some description, but she just couldn't seem to get with that medium at all. The clicking of the keys, the harsh light of the screen, and of course the danger of losing all of your work just didn't seem natural to her. The way a pen flowed across crisp, clean paper did. Words always seemed to come out faster and more naturally when she committed them this way. And so she stayed old school in her approach. 
The people at the coffee shop were well used to people coming in there to work on their novels, most of them to pose and regale anyone who would listen to their fantastic, awe-inspiring literary genius. They weren't used to somebody coming in with reels of paper and pens to actually write. In all honesty, another issue she had with laptops is that they were far too easy to get distracted on. Social media, memes, news articles, and supposed research were all so easy to access and distract, and she knew it would leave her with very little work actually done. And so she sat in the coffee shop, literally writing her novel. Every day she went in at opening, sat up in her favorite spot, a table close to the back of the shop, hidden in the shadow, isolated from everyone, and stayed all day until she realized that she had to return home to her family. Again, by working here rather than at home, she always seemed to get more work done, Less distractions to lure her away, but also so much inspiration for her book. Characters she developed because of customers, conversations she used as plot devices, and general people watching always helped make her book more well-rounded and fleshed out. In all honesty, it had been one of her best decisions. The only downside was that she had to buy coffee all day. So it wasn't necessarily her cheapest decision. The biggest help was with her central character, a killer, a man so heinous the world would laugh that they ever feared the Night Stalker, Bundy, or even the Toy Box Killers. The darkest, most sinister man, his mere presence made you believe in demons and pure evil because he was pure evil. At least, that's what she was trying to write. Even that character she based on another customer, one who seemed to have been coming to the coffee shop every day for almost as long as she had. He, like her, had a regular spot where he sat almost perfectly across from her. Not that they stared at each other, but well enough that she could see him in great detail and watch his face, his gestures, and his mannerisms. She wasn't really sure why she felt he was so perfect. He had an aura around him, something like a darkness he had that was nothing to do with the low lighting here at the back of the shop. He exuded confidence, though which was totally at odds with the strange feeling that she got just looking at him. He always seemed to be in charge, in charge of his thoughts, his actions. Hell, even the darkness around him seemed to be under his control. Strangely, despite this, she was utterly captivated by him, and so he became the basis of her killer. Each day she spent carefully watching him, Assuming he too was a writer or something to that effect, as he always had a small notebook with him. While he didn't write in it constantly, every once in a while he would scribble something in it. In fact, it was this mystery that also appealed to her. She had always assumed he was a poet, 
in all honesty. The way he acts, this dark, brooding nature seemed to lend themselves to that, as did his sense of dress. She tried to recall if she had ever seen him in anything other than black from head to toe, or without his long, dark trench coat all of which added again to his mystery. This lone man at the coffee shop, so dark, so isolated, and yet so alluring. He had somehow sucked her into his orbit because every day she watched for him, and now he was an important part of her life, she realized as she contemplated what he had become in her tale of horror. Had she seen him talk to anyone else? Actually, when she thought about it, she wasn't sure she's ever seen him speak to anyone. Not another customer, not someone on the phone, not even the barista at the counter. It certainly added to the mystique of the stranger, and thus to the character in her story. For that, she was thankful. This day was mostly like the other, and so she worked she drank coffee, so on and so forth, until it reached the time she needed to get home to her family. Her husband and son would be there waiting for her when she got home, just in time for dinner. Slowly, she began to organize all her paperwork, making sure everything was in correct order for tomorrow, putting it carefully into her folder and then into her small laptop bag, which ironically had never actually held a laptop, but fit her needs perfectly. She made sure to have her keys, her phone, her wallet, etc. And while she did that, she noted the strange man in black get up and also leave. As he did, a small black envelope fell from his pocket. Excuse me, she called politely trying to get his attention with no response. The hustle and bustle of the busy shop drowning out her words and carrying them anywhere but his ears. As she was now packed up and leaving anyway, she reached down and grabbed the envelope, following him quickly out of the shop. On exiting, she looked around and quickly spied him on the empty street. Excuse me, sir, you dropped this inside, she said, holding out the black envelope to his back as he came to a halt in his stride. He turned around slowly, and as he did, a glint of light off the envelope drew her attention to it. She looked at it, and she saw that it had her name on it. Not her full name, but on the front, in gold, cursive writing, was her name, Donna. Donna looked up to the man's face, a smile etched upon it, and as their eyes met, he spoke. "'Thank you, Donna,' he begins." But actually, this is for you. Confused, she replied, Sir, I'm not entirely sure it can be. And how on earth do you know my name? Ah, Donna, I know so much. Your name is just one thing. The statement certainly didn't help the confusion. Donna now felt a sickening feeling spreading inside. What the fuck was this guy talking about? Lamely, all she could muster in response was, What? Donna, he said carefully with a voice that was at a complete contradiction with the feeling she now had. It was deep and rich and warm, the type of voice that lures you in and gives you a vocal hug, 
almost bordering on sensual. This envelope is yours, or it might be. That is a decision only you will be able to make. Her uncertainty still not squashed. In fact, it was now amplified. She can only respond with questions. What on earth do you mean you dropped it, sir? It definitely isn't mine, and I honestly don't think I want it. Thank you, but no thank you. He gave a small chuckle. Not yet, perhaps, but once you know what it contains, perhaps then you'll think differently. His voice was once again luring her in, almost like a song she longed to hear, and bizarrely, that and that alone was making her stay, making the muddled and sickening gut feeling slowly give way to feelings of intrigue. What was in the envelope? And so she asked, well, what's in it? Must be something pretty small. Is it a check? She asked, hopefully, suddenly thinking that maybe she did want it. No, dear Donna, it doesn't contain something as paltry as money. It contains a time. Nothing more and nothing less. Bewildered, now she looks into his eyes, noting for the first time that they are actually a beautiful deep blue color. Again, at odds with the feeling she normally associated with him, and somehow she relaxes further as she speaks. A time? No offense, but um, why would I need some random time you've written down in an envelope? Well, it isn't just any time. Donna, this envelope contains the exact time and date you will die. Her eyes widened and her jaw dropped. She had a million things racing through her brain right now. Mostly things suggesting that this guy seek immediate help for his mental health or to question why she was even still standing there. Her gaze passing between looking at the delicate black envelope in her hand and looking back at the man's face. He looked at her as if what he said was perfectly reasonable and continued. Yes, Donna, I know it seems a little... He gestured with his hand in a swirling motion as if to conjure the right words. Unusual, what I've said, and yet it's the truth. This envelope contains the time of your death. That is why it is yours or, at least, could be. As he said it, he reached over and gently removed the envelope from her hand. He continued as he slipped it back into an interior pocket in his long coat. You must decide if you want to know. I find most people can't decide right away. Normally, 24 hours is an appropriate time to ponder. He looks directly at her now and says, Donna, I have revealed this information to so very few people. Not many are chosen to discover this information. The gods normally don't allow it, but every once in a while they give me an envelope and instructions on who I am to give it to. I don't know why. Perhaps it's for their amusement. Perhaps it is some divine reason that makes sense to only you and them. He smiles as he speaks, but at this point, Donna could do nothing but laugh. 
the gods, sir. I hope you're okay, but I really need to leave. Have a good day. Bye. And she turns to leave, her laptop bag twirling with her as she heads to her car. What the hell is with this guy? What a weirdo. Maybe it is time to find a new coffee shop, she contemplates. As she walks to her car, she reaches into her pocket for her car keys. And as she looks up, the strange man is already ahead of her once again, leaning against her car. What the fuck is with this dude, she thinks to herself. Donna, I know what I've told you is a little hard to believe, but I promise I'm not lying. The gods have gifted you with this information. If you wish to have it, it is yours. Perhaps you need to talk it over with Joshua? Donna was astonished. Firstly, how did he get to her car before her? Hell, how did he know this even was her car? And secondly, how the hell did he know Josh's name? Before she could even think of the words to say, he continued, I know this information comes with confusion. You are not the first to be bewildered by this offer. I am certain you won't be the last. Just know that it's genuine. My name is Azrael, and while normally this information is mine and God's alone, They have decided to bestow you with this knowledge, if you want it. Sir, I don't know who you are or what hospital you're meant to be in right now, Donna began. But before she could finish, he cut her off. Well, in all honesty, right now I could be in any number of hospitals across the world. But I've asked my siblings to step in. So now I have this time to talk to you. Donna's eyes rolled so hard she may have lost them at the back of her head forever. Sure, my man, if that's what you want to believe, that's just dandy, but I'll be on my way now. Have a nice life and have a nice death, she said, sarcasm dripping from her lips. I don't need your funny little envelope. In fact, I don't need any of whatever this is. Bye. With that, she did a small wave and began to unlock her car. Luckily, the driver's side was on the other side of the car from him, since he was creeping her out massively by now. But before she could get in, he said one last thing to her. Of course, as you wish, but know that this offer stands for 24 hours. We don't expect a decision on this to come easily or quickly. It is a conundrum that most people can't begin to fathom. So, Donna, you have 24 hours. At 4 p.m. tomorrow, I will be in Victoria Park, right over there, beside a small forest clearing on the inner island of the lake. There, I will wait for you with this envelope. I will wait for only five minutes. If you do not come for the envelope, the knowledge of it, and your memory of me will no longer be there. You have no recollection of any of this. Please think wisely. It is an important and difficult decision. Good evening, Donna. I will await your decision. With that, he turned and left, 
She opened her car door, looking to see where the man was, but he had already disappeared from view. Weirdo, was all that Donna could think as she drove home. The drive home was peaceful and slow. The whole incident seemed to fade from her mind. But as it did, it became replaced by an intense tiredness. She felt her eyes slowly drifting down to close, and Donna had to fight to stay awake. Thankfully, after just a few minutes, she was home safely. Once she managed to get to the house, she opened the door. She was greeted by an excited child and an overly enthusiastic dog. She greeted them in turn. Hello, beautiful boy, she said to her son, Zach, scooping him up for a big hug and giving him a kiss on his sweet, cherub-like cheek. How she adored him, and as she put him down on the floor, she was compelled to say, I love you, chipmunk, as he ran away, giggling cheerfully. Next, she addressed the large chocolate lab who had been dancing and jumping around them the entire time, also trying to get attention. Donna knelt to the ground to look at the dog in her eyes, and while playing with her ears, she said, Hello, beautiful. Have you been a good girl? The dog responded with a slow, slobbery kiss to Donna's face. Her tail wagging so quickly, one might worry she was about to take off like a helicopter. When Donna stood, another wave of intense tiredness washed over her. Her battery seemed to have been drained somehow, and even standing upright suddenly seemed to be a challenge. She slowly made her way to the kitchen, where she knew her husband would be busy. She sees him from across the room and, as always, is amazed that he is hers. Hey, beautiful, he smiles as he sees her entering the kitchen and comes over to hug her. Oh, how she needed those arms around her. She sinks into his embrace and uses his strength to help herself stay up, still fighting that sudden fatigue. Hey, my love, how was your day? Donna asked, already knowing that the enthusiastic care bear of a man in front of her will reply with nothing but fervor. The positivity from her husband was never-ending, and a thing of legend. And though it sounds awful, constant positivity, who has time for that? It was one of her favorite things about him. Oh man, it was great. I got so much done, and we had four new customers today. So I ain't got nothing to complain about. Plus, now you're home, so how could I even begin to complain? He looked at her with a twinkle in his eye and, as always, gave her bum a quick squeeze. Honestly, this man was just the best thing. How lucky she was, she realized. The earlier conversation with the strange man in black was affecting her more than she realized, but in a positive way. Donna looked around her house and she realized the joy she had in her life. She watched as her son sat in the living room area next to the kitchen, playing with some of his toys. The dog lying beside him, watching, waiting, and hoping for Zach's attention to turn to her. Donna turned around to watch her husband moving gracefully around the kitchen as he prepared dinner, almost dancing along to the radio he had on in the background. He had always been the one to prepare dinner. Donna was well aware of her strengths, and cooking wasn't one of them. 
She smiled to herself and wrapped her arms around her chest once again, being hit by the realization that she was so lucky, so completely surrounded by love, so blessed to have these people in her life. She walked to her husband and grabbed him from behind. He turned to her grinning as she kissed him. She held him close as she kissed him. She was suddenly so aware of the need to tell everyone she loved that she loved them, and so she did. Then suddenly, as before, she was hit with that sudden wave of sheer exhaustion. Honey, I'm not feeling great. I'm so tired. I swear I nearly fell asleep driving here. Do you mind if I skip dinner and just go to bed? He looked at her with a strange look. To the casual observer, he would just look happy, but she could see the concern hidden in his eyes. Of course, babe. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm fine. Just so tired. I think a good long sleep will sort me out. I'm going to get a great sleep and be raring to go tomorrow. Donna smiled up at him, hugged him once more, made her way over to the living room where she hugged Zach, ruffled the dog's head, and then slowly made her way up to the bedroom. Now she was on her way to bed. She was grateful to herself for deciding this was the best idea. By the time she changed into bed clothes, got ready, and into bed, she was physically exhausted. And so she tucked herself in and lay her head on her pillow waiting for the sleep to come. And as she did, she thought of her strange encounter, of the strange man in black and his bizarre offer, if you could call it that. Weirdly, she thought it had inexplicably already had a massive impact on her. She realized now that her sudden deep appreciation of her family was because of her encounter today. Truly, none of us know when will be our last moments, how long we have to spend with our families. And so tonight, she had become so very aware of how lucky and blessed she was. She was suddenly somehow more grateful for all she had. And as sleep began to take her, she now thought, what if she did know how long she had? Surely that would make her appreciate each day, each thing, each person she loved even more. The last thing she saw before she slipped into dreaming was that small black envelope with her name glinting on the front. And she heard a voice saying simply, My name is Azrael. Her sleep was not as soothing as she had hoped, spending most of it in fitful dreams and restlessness. Her unconscious mind obviously toying with the idea she hadn't really truly thought she was considering. Should she meet the man in black and open the envelope? It had left her almost as tired as yesterday and now also at a quandary. Was she really considering going to meet this man? Really considering that he spoke the truth and somehow knew the time and date she would die? She repeatedly told herself it was ridiculous. Of course he didn't. He couldn't. No one knew that. Or did they? Most people would argue that their lives are already planned out, that fate directs us exactly as it has been predetermined. 
our lives mapped out and all of us just stumbling along with the compass we think of as free will? What if that was true? What if it was all predetermined and whatever power did decree it somehow let this man in on it? Donna laughed at the ludicrousness of it all, but part of her still pondered. What if? Josh knew she had not slept well, so he kindly offered to take Zach to school before work and leave her to rest a little before she started her day. She kissed and hugged them both goodbye before heading to the sofa with a large coffee and her phone in hand. Already, she had decided to not go to the coffee shop today. So she sank into the seat, legs stretched out in front of her, and decided a little social media hole was where she needed to hide for a little while. Turn her brain off for a time. This whole thing was starting to consume way too much brain power, and it was overtaking everything. This task was not only mindless, but could easily occupy her for a few hours. And so she started scrolling, liking, commenting on everything and nothing, catching up with her friends, her favorites, and all the scandal she often missed being busy at the coffee shop writing all day. So efficient this task ended up being that she didn't realize the time until she heard her stomach give her a little reminder. It had had no food. Normally an eat-every-meal kind of girl, Donna suddenly remembered she skipped dinner last night and breakfast this morning. She looked at her watch. Fuck, she thought. It was two o'clock. Definitely time for lunch. So she got up, walking to the kitchen where she put on her favorite podcast, hosted by two lovely Southern ladies, and all about true crime and the paranormal. In all honesty, listening to this podcast was what had started her writing again, giving her inspiration for some of the gruesome scenes in her tales of crime and murder. She prepared herself lunch while half-listening and was just sitting down to eat when she finally, truly listened to what the hosts were talking about. Angels. Angels who supposedly visited people on their deathbeds. Yeah, that's crazy, right? Said the first host, also named Donna. She was in for something completely routine and all this happened. Good lord. I'm so glad this didn't happen to me. Carrie, the other host, interrupted. Well, I mean, just to play devil's advocate here, but it could have all been a dream. She slipped into what was basically a coma, but her brain could have just created this whole scenario. Somehow, she knew she was almost dying, and her brain created this so-called angel of death. I mean, he was dressed in all black. That's a bit obvious, right? Donna, the host, replied excitedly. You could certainly tell they love what they do. Yeah, but how did she know his name? I mean, Azrael, it's not exactly common. She swears she didn't know the name until after all this, and then she Googled it. I don't know, Carrie replied. Your brain takes in so many stupid facts and things you don't necessarily know you know, but you know them. You know what I mean? And the ladies burst into fits of giggles as they normally did. Donna, who had stopped eating mid-bite, was not laughing. She skipped back and played one section on repeat over and over. I mean, Azrael. I mean, Azrael. And as she did, another voice from inside her head merged with the host's voice. But this one said, My name is Azrael. 
Donna couldn't explain it. His name. It's the name of the angel of death? She was already so confused about the whole incident. And now, now she was just, well, well, she couldn't explain it. Any of it. What the hell was happening? Was this real? Like, really real? Had an actual angel been with her this whole time? Had anyone else even known he was there? He never did seem to interact with anyone. It was something she remembered noting about him, how he always seemed to have coffee yet never have spoken to anyone. Well, not that she noticed. Had he been watching her, waiting to tell her about the envelope? Man, this was all crazy, she thought to herself. What the fuck? Donna didn't know what the hell she was going to do, but she knew that she had to go to that meeting. This guy always intrigued her, but now, now she needed more. She ran upstairs to get dressed and ready, aware that the 4 p.m. meet time was fast approaching. As Donna dressed, she thought over the whole thing. She wanted to see what he would say to her today. Consciously, she didn't know what she would do about the envelope, but deep down, she had made a decision. Running down the stairs, she glanced at herself in the mirror before she grabbed her keys and phone and ran out. She looked good, she noted. Somehow, this excitement, this adrenaline running through her system was making her glow. She looked better than she had in ages. Jumping in the car, she started to drive to the park where he had told her he would meet her. Donna pulled into the car park by the park. It was almost empty, but for a few scattered cars. She got out and noticed, well, everything. She could see the tree swaying in the wind, hear the rustle of it through the dry autumnal leaves. She could smell the crisp autumn air and feel it as it danced across her skin, the coolness of it somehow making her feel more awake, more alive. Somehow she felt more aware of everything around her. Everything seemed so much more vivid than it ever had before. Thinking of what she was about to do, she felt more full of life than she ever had. She glanced at her watch and realized that she had 30 minutes until the planned meeting time. Time enough for her to make her way through the park, over to the island in the middle of the lake within it. She walked with determination and a strange sense of curiosity. Looking around her, she realized how beautiful this park truly was. The birds singing, flying between the trees, then coming down to the ground in search for food. The many different plants and trees, all awash with different colors. Vibrant oranges and greens and muted browns all mixed among the foliage of the trees. There were touches of pinks and violets and red everywhere you looked, flowers still in bloom despite the season. Now was their time to shine. On the water of the lake, she could see a family of ducks, and as she watched them, she once again thought of her own family and how she loved them. So she sat on a small park bench across the water and pulled out her phone. Donna opened one of her apps and messaged her husband a selfie of her here at the park with the simple message. Hey, my love, thank you for last night and this morning. I really needed it. You are the absolute best. I love you and Zach more than you could ever know. Can't wait to see you tonight. I have some interesting news. She tucked her phone away, 
checking the time before she did so into her pocket. Ten minutes. Perfect. Just enough time to cross the little bridge and get to that clearing. Donna approached the clearing and immediately started to regret deciding to come. Or at least coming without telling anyone. She had watched and listened to too much true crime to know that this was a really stupid idea. And so she slipped out her phone once again. She opened the messaging app once again and shared her location with her husband, along with the quick message. I'm at Victoria Park meeting with someone. Be home soon. Love you. Kiss. With that, she felt a bit better and pushed onward to the clearing ahead. She emerged and no one was there. She checked the time. 3.59. Okay, technically she was early, but she assumed he would be too. Or at least definitely on time, as she saw her watch tick over to four. Almost as soon as she thought it, he appeared. Or he seemed to. He seemed to appear from nowhere. One second not there, the next second standing a few feet ahead of her. Her skin covered in goosebumps. What the fuck? She thought not for the first time in his presence. Hello, Donna. So lovely to see you came. I honestly had doubts you would. You've surprised me. He looked at her intently, seeming to weigh up in his own mind the fact that she was before him. I have questions, Donna began. Questions about you. Are are you... are you... She felt so ridiculous. Are you really an angel? He looked at her, his eyes blank, not giving away anything. Donna, look into your heart. You already know the answer to this. Think of what I have already told you. You know the answer. Helpful, Donna thought. Did she know? Really know? She didn't think so. She wanted to help. That's why she was here. She wasn't sure of any of it. Anything else? He probed. Donna wanted to ask much more. She had so many questions. But his previous answer had thrown her. She was bewildered by it. By her own internal conflict. But all she could say was, No. Fantastic, he said enthusiastically. Then let's begin. The reason you're here, I have to assume, is to get the envelope. As I said yesterday, had you not shown, your memory of our meeting would have just... He flourished with his hands. Vanished. So now I must tell you that there are certain things you must abide by if you are to obtain this information. Number one. You must open the envelope here with me. Then I will take it back. Such information is for your eyes only. Donna was surprised by this and began to protest. He silenced her, holding up one finger. I'm sorry, Donna. These are the rules. Number two, the information is solely for you. How you respond to it. The things you do as a result, you may speak of. But the true reason you may never tell another living soul, not even Josh, I'm afraid. Donna was now beginning to think that maybe this wasn't a good idea. Of course she wanted to tell Josh. She told him everything. Then, almost as if he had been reading her mind, the man in black interjected, I'm sorry, Donna. This would have to be your one secret from him. And thirdly, and finally, he continued, If you choose to not open this envelope now, all your memories of me from today, 
yesterday, and any other time you may have seen or thought of me will be erased. I will cease to have been any part of your life. On hearing this, Donna once again became puzzled. Not sharing this information with Josh had brought her so close to turning down the envelope. She didn't need to know, did she? Everyone else went on living their lives perfectly happily. But if all the memories of this man disappeared, then what of her novel? He had become such an important part of her tale. If all that disappeared, would all she had written be gone too? He looked at her and he took her hands. Decision time, Donna. Do you want the envelope? She looked into his eyes, those endless blue eyes, and the answer came to her. Yes, yes, I do. It was so obvious now. Knowing held power. She could live every second of her remaining days. She could plan for so many things. She could be more adventurous and daring, take more risk, all the time knowing it was never truly a risk. She could appreciate her family knowing how much time she had left to love them. It was really the most obvious decision. Now she was here. This envelope and the information contained within it held nothing but positive things for Donna. She could see the rest of her life before her, each second, each minute, each hour filled with love and joy because she knew how precious every single one was. The man in black, Azrael, let go of her hands and reached into his pocket. Gently, he took out the envelope and passed it to her and took a careful, deliberate step back from her. She looked down at the envelope in her hands and turned away from the man, her name so delicate across the front of the envelope. She traced each letter slowly with the finger, trying to take in every second before flipping it over and popping the seal. Gradually, she lifted the flap and began to remove the card from inside. So small, she thought so small to contain such important information. The size of a typical business card. It seemed so at odds with the level of importance that it held. She looked at it, and the card was blank, so she hurriedly turned it over. There, written in gold, in the same font as her name on the front of the envelope, was one simple word. Now. Turmoil washed over her, and she turned to face Azrael. As she did, she felt a slow warmth erupt in her torso. His left arm wrapped around her, drawing her to him. She looked into his eyes, no longer a deep and brilliant blue, but a dark and dangerous black, like a shark. He looked down at her and could see the confusion on her face. He knew she still hadn't worked out as she stood in his embrace. He looked at every inch of her face, each part being burnt into his memory. Months and months of watching her, studying her, following her, and finally the moment had arrived. He looked down to his hand, the one that was not around her. He saw the warm red liquid beginning to cover it. Slowly, he pulled the knife from her stomach. A gasp escaped her lips as he did. He leaned in and whispered into her ear, It's okay. It's time. 
and he plunged the knife deep inside her once again, his body vibrating with the sensation. The joy he gains with each stab cannot be expressed. The only thing that brings him any feeling is when he has this power over people, as he sees the light and life ebbing out of them, those whom he has made his entire life about, those people he has studied and watched over the course of many months learning carefully about each and every aspect of their entire lives, his world revolving around theirs until their lives become merged, muddled together so they are his entire world, all leading up to this one delicious moment for him. Watching Donna each day at the coffee shop, he had imagined this day and now it was here so much better than any fantasy he had sitting so close to her almost every day. As he thought of all those times he watched her riding, drinking, even at home as she slept, he plunged the knife in and out, savoring each moment, feeling the warmth of her life covering him, knowing that she would be his forever. Now, my darling Donna, Now is the time of your death, he whispered as her legs buckled and he slowly lay her down to the ground. He stood above her, watching her fade away, knowing that soon she would be gone forever, a memory he could enjoy over and over until it lost that spark. These wonderful memories always lost their spark. Failing to bring him his ultimate pleasure, he was now experiencing always did. But for now, he was soaking it up, watching her chest heaving, struggling for its last breath. He could tell she would be gone soon. This angel of death was successful once again. He knelt beside her and placed a gentle kiss on her forehead, delicately removed the envelope and card from her hand, then stood and replaced the knife and envelope into his interior coat pocket. He was so happy she had come and decided to open the envelope. He had honestly doubted she would. He looked down at her one last time and turned, leaving her to be nothing but his wonderful memory. Donna lay on the cold, hard ground, darkness starting to surround her. Cold. So cold, she thought. Then she thought of her family, her poor family. What had she done? So stupid. She shivered, knowing her time was almost done. She watched as the curious man in black vanished again. Not an angel, but a monster, just as he had been in her story. She should have listened to her first instinct, the reaction she initially had about the man. She should have listened to her earlier concerns about meeting up with this strange man in the park. But she didn't. And now her final fleeting thoughts turn not to her family, who she loved more than life itself, but to her novel. What an amazing story this could have been for her own literary man in black. This one is called Nostalgia by Anthony N. It's been 12 years since time devices were developed by Swedish physicists, now collectively known as Nostalgia Technologies, or NOSTEC, and since then, nothing has been the same. The evolution of technology has turned society cold and ruthless. So much thought to be true has been proven to be nothing more than a fairy tale. 
So much faith has been lost. Freeform time travel only lasted for three months before it was banned by the United Nations. But patents for control and guided time travel have become a huge market overnight, leading into the trillions of dollars. But even that was outlawed after a year. While the time travel developed in labs was a ghost form of the time travel, making the user unable to change the stream of time, some rogue scientists got their hands on the mechanics and set their sights on changing historic events, hoping for the betterment of society. It didn't last long, but the damage was done. The tech development for this type of time travel allowed the human mind to remember both realities, original and new, and so forth. This led to the creation of the ITA, the International Time Administration. Their single goal was to correct the events of time travel gone wrong and reset the events that were changed. But we all remember utopias and apocalypses alike. Many people died, and that couldn't be reversed. The population of Earth was cut nearly in half, which caused chaos for years. There were blackouts, extreme food shortages, high crime in more densely populated areas, less law enforcement in lesser populated areas. And then we all started to collect wealth faster, products became cheaper, homelessness was eliminated, food production bounced back, and society was growing into something better than it was. But there were still extremists who were trying to bring back the lost. And although it was illegal, they were funding the study of contraband time devices, trying to crack the code Nostec gadgets held highly firewalled. The most dangerous extremist groups were known only to ITA agents, kept under wraps due to the likelihood of the average person to defect into their beliefs. Also kept secret due to the ITA's confidential goal, which was to keep the dead, well, dead. The world was getting better. This was a hard pill to swallow, but it was medicine nonetheless. Now, I may seem like an omnipresent narrator, knowing so much of this information, but I know this information because I am, and soon will be formally, a high-ranking ITA official. My exact title is highly classified, and my name is on the record as unknown. When we began our work, we started as a small team, of which I was a leading member of. We were all enhanced with bioquantum technology that allowed us to time travel, freeform. This made us not only targets, but weapons. Each ITA's agent's identity is officially redacted, and there is, in fact, no paper trail that states we even exist. Some of us live in the past, some the future. We don't have a place in time other than the time we are charged with protecting. We don't get to have families or friends, day jobs, or anything a normal person would take for granted. We can only interact with other ITA agents, and those interactions are under extreme levels of surveillance, using exclusive ITA-issued devices and networks. We agents are even issued skin-tight silicone suits that allow us to appear invisible. The ITA's tech is unbelievably advanced. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is off-limits. Our leader, someone known as H, is overwhelmingly thorough in their preparation of assignments. And I just killed them. 
I became a founding member of the ITA because I was something more secret than your run-of-the-mill CIA agent before the dawn of the time control era. I was a child spy, created in a lab, trained from birth to be a weapon, to blend into society, to manipulate anything possible into trusting me with their most confidential information. And I was created to be the founder of ITA, to control it from within, to watch H and their moves. We were the only surviving founders, and now I am H. You see, the extremists I mentioned before, they couldn't succeed in their efforts to create new tech, so instead they created something different, in a different time, on a different path, a plan that concluded with me committing the most egregious crime from within and taking the identity of my only peer while they were looking in a different direction. But I, I have defected. I can see the forest through the trees, and as H, I must now lead as them. I must right my wrongs, take out those that raise me and the extremists I once called family. I can move freely now through time, and I have to keep up the guise of being the leader, the leader the ITA knows. And I must decide, am I to be an observer or an activist? I now have the ultimate power and ultimate control, something I've never known, something I've always yearned for. Maybe now I am the closest a person can be to being omnipresent. Maybe I am a monster, but they created me to be this. Thank you so much to everyone on Patreon that submitted these amazing stories. Y'all are such good writers. So freaking talented. I love them. They made you think, laugh, cry. Everything in between. Thank y'all so very much, and we hope that everyone enjoyed them. But more importantly, remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.